0: Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week has led, well, let's say he's led several lives. Let's go back to when he was uh, just a kid. He was a gymnast. And as a teenager, He hoped to become a diplomat, and then later in his life, he actually became a a classroom teacher, but it was in the middle. For 30-plus years, my guest was a spy, Gene Coyle. Gene, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thanks for the invitation. Well, Gene worked for the CIA, as I say, for 30-plus years, He was a field operations officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. In fact, he has been awarded the CIA's Intelligence Medal of Merit. His job was, when he was in Moscow during the the height of the Cold War, was to flip other diplomats into uh, giving information to him. We'll get into all that. That was real life. But the truth is, right now, Gene Coyle is involved in more of a fantasy life, and that is he writes novels about crime and and the spy game. And I believe uh, you have a new one that you've just finished, Gene. Which one is that?
1: Uh, The most recent one out is called Last Voyage on the Danube. It takes place in early 1939, and it involves a group of Indiana University alumni of the class of 1924 who decide to take a sort of Christmas, New Year's trip down the Danube. And this ties in with what I've done in recent years for the Alumni Association, which is I have gone on some of their river cruises as the docent, wherein I give a few lectures about the world of espionage, and I tell some stories at the bar in the evening, some of which might be true, (laughs) and uh, coincidentally, the stops on The Real Cruise, which will be coming up in May of 22, uh, are the same as the stops in the novel. That will make uh, novel number eight that I have written.
0: And uh, it's just a fun pastime for me. Who who, uh, were some of the alumni that are in that Danube River uh, cruise in your novel? Well, the
1: characters, the main characters are uh, purely fictional, but uh, they are surrounded as these alumni are on the boat floating along they start talking about that, uh, you remember that chubby little guy, Herman Wells, who played, uh, trombone <laughs> or, uh, yeah, you know, it was fun going over to the Gables and hearing Hoagy Carmichael play piano when he was cutting out from his law classes. So I've been able to work into the storyline, uh, a lot of true trivia about Indiana university and, uh, According to Bill Bennett, who runs the travel program there at the Alumni Association, for anyone who signs up for the cruise next year, uh, they're, they're going to get a free autograph
0: copy of the novel. Oh, wow. That's a wow. treat. Yeah. Let me tell the listeners some of the titles of your books. Uh, one was called Diamonds and Deceit, Another Nazi Gold, Portuguese Wine, and a Lovely Russian Spy. Ooh, that sounds like a movie. Uh, a third is A Spy's Lonely Path. Then there was The Dream Merchant of Lisbon. And I love this title. This is a spy novel title for my money. No Game for Amateurs. Now, uh, what titles have I missed there, Gene?
1: That's, we're missing one, but I'm I'm getting old and senile, and I don't remember right off the top of my head, but... The Dream Merchant of Lisbon was the first one and it was actually picked up then by a publishing house in Portugal and they translated it and it has been published in Portuguese. Huh. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm big down in Mozambique or someplace. You know? <laughs> and uh, it, when you walk down the street, they'll go, Hey, there he is. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I've, I've worked into the novels. And uh, one small fact is, even though I am retired, and even though these are fictional novels, I still have to submit them to the Uh CIA's Publication Review Board to make sure I'm not giving away some secret. But what the the people who sit on that review board don't know is most of the real history of operations (laughs) in the CIA. Actually, about the, about the second or third one I wrote, I'd, I'd sent a copy to one of my old colleagues from the CIA, and he he phoned me up and he says, "Gene, what's this nonsense that this is a fictional book? You know, and I know we're talking about Athens in 1987." And I said, "Quiet, quiet." quiet. You know, that's, so as long as I sort of changed the names, changed the dates, a lot of which is in the novels is based on how the real world of espionage works. People who read them and generally enjoy them, although there are no fast cars, uh, people are not being gunned down in the streets. I have broken down and put in a few good looking women, but in general, the real game of espionage, i.e. what I did, which was to meet foreign diplomats and officials, and find the few who had something lacking in their life. And in return for what they were lacking, if I could supply that, they would give me secrets in return. So it's this intellectual chess game is what I always enjoyed. The only times I ever carried a gun uh, was when I had been sent to Bosnia shortly after the fighting had stopped there in the mid-90s. And then, of course, after 9-11, when everybody got into the counterterrorism world, and I was quickly taken out of the job I was doing at the time and sent overseas. And on that occasion, for those several months, I I was carrying a, a 357 Magnum on my hip which, uh, kind of like Dirty Harry, this thing weighs so much, I swear, I listed to the side wearing this thing, walking around.
0: Yeah, those Uh, things, uh, as as, um, Mickey Spillane used to call uh, Mike Hammer's gun, uh, the artillery. That sounds like a piece of artillery. (laughs) Yeah, well, when I'd gotten to Bosnia,
1: and I was being sent off to a little city by myself, and From where the capital was, and I talked to the administrative officer of the little CIA section, and I said, "Okay, you've you've gotten the my gun certification that I know how to shoot and not hit my own foot. So where where is my nine millimeter Browning in those days? Yeah, still was. And he says, "Well, Gene, we're all out of guns." (laughs) And I and I said, "Don't don't let this get around. I mean." How can the CIA be all out of guns in a country where every man, woman, and child has three? So I said, look, I'm leaving this afternoon. Find something. So he comes back a couple hours later, and he hands me this box. And, it, and it's got this, you know, great big 357 Magnum in it. And I said, where the heck did you come up with that? And he, he said, don't ask. <laughs> so, I assume he went down to the black market in Sarajevo and bought one behind the the grocery store. But anyway, most of my work has been done in what we would call classical espionage, i.e. the recruiting of a foreigner to provide me and the U.S. government
0: secrets. Okay. Now, you're in Moscow in the middle of the 1980s. And you're doing your work, your work being to flip these diplomats and other key people into giving you information. The thing is, what do the Soviets think you're doing in their country? What is your cover? Uh,
1: Well, it's been many years since it occurred, so I can talk about it now. My cover story was that I, I was a State Department officer uh-huh. that uh, believe it or not, the State Department was in charge of buying books that were published in the Soviet Union. Any agency of the u s government, any military, they would go through the list of books that the so you know the Soviets would put out a publishing list for the coming year. And that would be translated in English, circulated around, and then we would receive this master list out at Moscow that says, oh, okay, the Treasury Department wants 22 copies of such and such. There were actually two of us people at the embassy who had to go out and go around to different bookstores and even travel to other republics of the Soviet Union and physically buy the books. The Soviets wouldn't let us just give them a list of the 9,000 books we wanted to buy that year. <laughs> they, they said, you want, you want these books, you have to go buy them one by one. <laughs> uh, so I was out all the time buying books, boring my KGB surveillance team to tears, and after about six months, people quit following me around which was a great, great surprise, uh, the CIA. But uh, after a while, we confirmed that, no, people were not following me. And so mostly what we were doing in Moscow was handling Russians who had been recruited elsewhere in the world, and now they were back home in Moscow.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so it's very complicated and very esoteric, of how you do this with dead drops and chalk marks on walls and things. But once the KGB quit following me, I had about a nine month stretch without surveillance on a regular basis. And so while I was out buying some books, I could also go by a place and put a little chalk mark on a telephone pole. (laughs) And, And that, and that told our Soviet agent, okay, we're ready to arrange a meeting or different things like this. And then the the operation for which I received the Intelligence Medal of Merit was a technical operation, uh, which I can sort of vaguely say, Uh, we had managed to figure out where were the underground phone cables that ran out of Moscow and went to a, a top secret research facility where the Soviets were working on uh, particle beam weapons. Wow. And so this 40-pound black box, which I had taken out in the woods and had buried down in the ground and tapped into their underground cables, for that, I, when I brought one back, I was given the Intelligence
0: Medal of Merit. I wonder, Gene, would you suppose, and I would suppose just guessing, that there's probably a bunch of guys in the United States who are from what is now Russia doing the same thing you were doing over there in the 1980s. Absolutely.
1: The great game, as it's often referred to in the literature world anyway, uh, is you've got CIA people spying on the then Soviet Union and now Russia, and you've got Russians spying on the United States. Uh, The big one right now, in fact, there's more Chinese espionage going on in America. The biggest difference through the Cold War between Soviet Union and the United States was that most of the Russians that we recruited, they were doing it for ideological reasons, They were trying to bring about some sort of change in the Soviet Union.
0: They were unhappy.
1: Yeah. And that they wanted to have, you know, human rights and democracy and this sorts of things. Yeah. Most of the Americans, ever since about, say, 1955 onward, just to pick a round number, have done it for money. Americans, sadly, are are kind of a, a greedy
0: bunch. Yeah. Yeah. that the KGB could just buy. Didn't you recruit some people while you were in Moscow for the same reason, that they were in need of money, too? Well, l- let me correct one thing. Generally, you'd, I would not
1: be recruiting a person in Moscow uh-huh. because you're just, you're watched too much, they're watched too much. Most of the Soviet officials who had been recruited, this had occurred elsewhere in the world. My first posting was Wellington, New Zealand. And when I would tell my students here at IU about that, they'd all laugh and they'd go, what the heck are you doing in Wellington, New Zealand? (laughs) You know, keeping track of the radical Islamic sheep. But the fact is, in Wellington, New Zealand, when I was there, there was a good-sized Soviet embassy. There was a Chinese embassy, Polish, Czech. So you're, you're much more likely to have an opportunity to recruit an East European or a Soviet during the Cold War era out in some little place like Wellington, New Zealand. When they get back to Moscow, they're already recruited And you're mostly just trying to handle them and exchange information, etc. But I recruited over the years a variety of people. And some were for very noble ideological reasons. And uh, one other East European in particular was an absolute scumbag. He had a wife. He had a girlfriend. He liked to gamble. He gambled very badly. Uh oh. He'd stolen money out of his embassy. Ooh. The auditors were coming in a few weeks. And fortunately, over that time frame, he had become friends with Mr. Gene Coyle. And so he had a friend who he could turn to to borrow money. It's that chess game of getting to know someone well enough that they feel comfortable enough that they will tell you what they really want. Maybe it's a better life for their children. Maybe it's to, to bring a change. I, I recruited another East European who really did want to see his country get rid of communism, et cetera, et cetera. And at our last meeting out in the West before he was going back to his country, he gave me a letter which he had written addressed to his son, who at that time was about 12. And he said, if I get caught and I am shot, I would like for the CIA to somehow, someday get this letter to, into the hands of my son so that he would know the real reason I have done this. And I mean, the two of we were both sitting there in tears. You just cannot believe the emotions that are involved in the handling of this. And of course, back, back to Moscow, when I was out some night and perhaps meeting an agent on a dark alley for five minutes or something, had we been caught, I had diplomatic immunity so I would just be expelled in a day or two from Moscow. The guy I was handling was going to be shot within just a month or two. They, they don't have a real long appeal process. No, <laughs> That was always on your mind or in the back of your mind that uh, this is not a game. This, this is real lives. These are people who felt so strongly that they were willing to risk their life in getting information to the U.S.
0: government. Was there ever a point where you said to yourself, what the hell am I doing? I'm putting these people's lives in danger. Maybe I should stop. Did you ever think that?
1: No, and I'll skip the congressman's name, uh, but a few years back, there was a congressman who has never liked the CIA very much, and he was always referring as to how the CIA tricked people into working for it. The fact is, we never tricked anybody into spying for us. These were people who had their own motivations. Maybe they were high-minded, maybe they were sleazy characters and just wanted the money, but they had their own justification in their mind. They knew the game and the risks that was going on. And I assured them that we would do everything possible to keep them safe. But that was their decision to engage in this. And sadly, because at the time we found out years later that uh, the CIA fellow, Rick Ames, was giving away names. The yeah. uh, FBI fellow, Robert Hansen, was giving away names. So the, the last months or so that I was there, we kept having case after case go bad. And uh, the messages between CIA headquarters and the Moscow station were getting kind of testy because they assumed that we were screwing up in some fashion. And we kept saying, no, we're not screwing up. It wasn't until years later that when Rick Ames and others were discovered that we, we knew the real reason that so many of our agents were getting wrapped up at the time. But let me talk about one, one other little angle of, aside from the straight espionage, Just the career that I had, which allowed me to live around the world for about 15 out of those 30 years, I was in different countries ranging from Brazil, Portugal, Athens, uh, out in uh, Kyrgyzstan after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and just the opportunities that that gave me to meet people from around the world and engage in fun things. When, when we were in Moscow, uh, Senator Bill Bradley came to town for a few days, uh, the, the former New York Knicks world champion. Right. And he had an old college colleague who worked at the embassy. And Bradley told him, he says, look, I just don't want to sit around and get briefings. I'd like to meet some real Russians. So we had a friendly little basketball game on Sunday mornings over at Moscow State University. And so Greg convinced Bill Bradley to come over and play basketball with us on that Sunday. And Bradley shows up and he says, look, I, I haven't touched a ball in 20 years. So <laughs> let, let, let's, let's, uh, let's just play zone and, you know, so I don't hurt or anything. Well, two things. The Russians, we told him that we were bringing Bill Bradley. And so suddenly that Sunday, one of the students at the university Uh, turned out to be a six foot six center from the red army basketball team (laughs) Uh, to the Soviet union. Nothing was just for fun. They wanted to make sure they beat the Americans and Senator Bradley. So we were playing games just to 20 points. And the first game they, they beat us like 20 to eight. It was just embarrassing. Bradley calls everybody over, screw this man zone stuff. We'll play man to man, you guard him, I'll guard him, you guard him. And we start playing the follow-up games, and Bradley's diving on the floor. It's like he's playing for the NBA championship. You can take NBA player like Bradley out of the NBA, Bradley, but he still hated to lose.
0: Yeah, yeah. That competitive instinct, that's what got him to the highest level of his game.
1: And in our in the fifth and final game, the the Russians had us down 18 to 12. Mr. Coyle sank jump shot 14, jump shot 16, jump shot 18. Uh-oh. Bradley wins it on a Bradley Coyle, Bradley give and go for a layup. We win the game 20 to 18.
0: Sounds like somebody else has a competitive instinct as well. I've, I've always been a
1: much more gracious winner than I was a bad loser.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. Hey, now earlier you mentioned that there was a uh, congressman who wasn't too fond of the CIA, which makes me think that uh, in 2004, you came to Indiana University as part of the CIA Officer-in-Residence Program, and that meant for a couple of years You lectured on international intelligence uh, issues. And then in 2006, you actually got a job as an adjunct professor uh, teaching courses uh, dealing with things like national security and the history of espionage. The thing is, is that at that time, some of the IU faculty objected to your presence. Well, the, the one
1: thing was that there was still the post-9-11 mentality. When I got here in 2004, the overall attitude was, well, okay, thank God the CIA's out there fighting terrorism or stuff. Interestingly, the faculty who were most worried about me when I would meet them in the halls of Ballantyne was, um, within a few minutes, they would say, so are, are you here on a tenure track position? And once I said, no, I'm, I'm just here as a guest lecturer sort of thing. And they said, oh, well, welcome. You know, <laughs> and they, were, they were afraid I might be competition for a sure. tenure uh, position. But once they heard I was just passing through, well, welcome, Gene. Glad you're here. The other thing I ran into as time went by was I do not have a Ph.D., My undergrad and my master's is from here at IU, but no PhD. And uh, to some faculty, uh, unless you have a PhD, you're not really worthy of teaching at Indiana University,
0: you know. And hardly worthy of being alive. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: Several years later, uh, I got made one of these professors of practice, Uh, after they, you know, Senator Luger and Congressman Hamilton, uh, they then reached much further down the list and said, okay, Gene, you should be a a professor of practice. And uh, with my students, it was always wonderful because at the end of the semester in the course reviews, I'd always have out of my 25 students, I'd get three or four students who would write it's so cool having somebody teach this who's actually done it, and not just read some books on the topic. Now it also gave me a real advantage. Uh, anytime some student would ask me a question that I really didn't know how to answer, it, I would just say, "Well, uh, you're you're getting into a very sensitive area. I really can't talk about that." <laughs> <laughs> And then I would go home and look up on Wikipedia and, you know, two days later back in class, I could sort of give them an answer. But uh...
0: <laughs> Well, it's happened again. My guest and this week it's Gene Coyle, author, spy and a retired professor of practice here at uh, Indiana University, Bloomington. We went so long in our conversation that we're making this a two-parter. So tune in next week, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. here on WFHB for part two of my interview with Gene Coyle.